Hello there, donkeys. What's up? My name is Luke Thomas. This is the uh, promotional malpractice for Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, today on the podcast, we will talk about, let's see, um, there's some Reebok news. <laughs> um, we'll get to that. Obviously, 194 is right around the corner, as well as the Ultimate Fighter finale, as well as Ultimate Fight Night 80, all within back-to-back-to-back days. That's going to be crazy, so we'll talk about all that. Um, Josh Thompson actually is headlining a Bellator show on Friday, so to the extent you want to talk about that, we can do that as well. Um, some interesting fighter pay comments from Lorenzo Fertitta, so lots of stuff to get to uh, here on this lovely podcast of ours. Uh, best place to ask your questions, as you well know, on MMAfighting.com. Comments that turn green get uh, priority, but not exclusivity. You may also follow me on Twitter, at Thomas. You can hear Barbus over there. Um, and, um, you can use the hashtag chat rappers to ask questions on Twitter. I will get to those as well. I apologize. My beard is absolutely out of control. I haven't trimmed it in weeks. Uh, it looks, uh, a little haggard, but what can you do? All right. Oh, and as you know, you got to do the do, right? Diet Mountain Dew. This is actually, I saw a ranking. I put this, I mentioned this before. There was a ranking of diet sodas. Uh, and this was like towards the bottom of the list, which just tells you that list is uh, an absolute joke, undeserving of being taken seriously in any capacity whatsoever. And here's a funny true story. So I bought myself a brand new microphone. You can't see it, but I've got a pop filter here now next to the existing microphone. I bought myself um, a stand for the microphone, like really nice gear. And I bought it on the 27th, which I think was Black Friday. And it was same-day delivery because I'm a Prime subscriber on Amazon uh, or a Prime member, whatever. And it uh, still hasn't showed up yet. So I had to call the post office today and put in a case for it to see where it is and to get it to me. They say within 48 to 72 hours I'll have it, but I don't believe them. All right. With that out of the way, let's get to some questions, shall we? Here we go. First question. Oh, it's a good one. Chris Weidman's training partners. Even though Chris Weidman has proven to be a phenomenal talent and a dominant champion, I'm still left questioning the fighters that he's been training with as of late. There's no doubt that Weidman's coaching is top-notch, being under the tutelage of renowned instructors like Ray Longo, Matt Sarah, Henzo Gracie, and John Danner. Okay. But despite the fact that Chris has connected himself with an elite coaching staff, his sparring partners are Gian Vellante, Eddie Gordon, Chris Camozzi, and Elias Theodorou. Uh, they are still low-level fighters in their respective weight classes. I'm a firm believer in iron sharpens iron concept. And the importance of having elite fighters to train with has always proven to be beneficial for improving and maintaining a fighter's overall game. In Weidman's situation, however, I can't help but feel that his current training partners are the only ones that are bene- benefiting from sparring with him in the gym on a daily basis. Question. Am I wrong to think that Weidman would be better off aligning himself with more established fighters who possess the elite level skills to consistently push him in training? This is a super interesting question. I'm glad we're kicking off the chat this way. Uh, I won't reveal the details of the conversation, but Chris Weidman was once a guest on MMA Uncensored Live, and we had a conversation about this very question. Now, I didn't disparage his training partners, but there was the question essentially framed a different way, which is, he believed, and I, you know, I'm not going to say verbatim what he said, but he basically believed and argued against the idea of a super camp. 
he really disliked it. He didn't want to be a part of it and thought it had a lot of drawbacks. Not to say that there weren't any benefits to it, but that there were way more negatives to it than positives. That he is in the situation that you described is in no way accidental. This is not something he just found himself in and is working through it. This is not something where, you know, well, I don't want to uproot my life and go to, I don't know, let's just make something up, uh, ATT, even though I, I could. Um, he has a financial way where they to go and do that. He doesn't believe that is optimal for him. He truly, fundamentally believes that the small camp, because he is the star of the show and everything is built around him, is really the best way to go. Now, there should be a couple of notes about this that you didn't quite make in the question here. Number one, for his striking, <clears throat> excuse me, for his striking, he does a lot of work with Wonder Boy. Wonder Boy is an elite striker. Now, he's a certain kind of striker. He's not a Donald Cerrone, a little bit more Muay Thai-based kind of striker, but it's not like he's not getting some good technical instruction in the stamp department. I think we could all agree, even with Stephen Thompson being more of that karate sideways style, um, he's just going to know enough about the fundamentals of striking to be able to mimic Luke Rockhold, to understand what Rockhold's trying to do. He's not going to be lost in that particular researching uh, and preparation. So he's going to have good stuff there. The second part about that is I firmly believe in jiu-jitsu that iron sharpens iron. Um, you're not going to get better unless you're rolling with a wide variety of people. You should be rolling with, I mean, depending on your level, of course, but you should be rolling with people at your same level. You should be rolling with people below you so you could try out things. Maybe you're, maybe you're a top passer and you're trying to work on some omoplatas or triangle setups. You know, maybe you start with someone a little bit not quite as good as you so you can work your way up. And then once it becomes proficient and a part of your game, you begin to exercise it at, you know, whatever level you're at, purple, brown, black, whatever. Um, although if you're black and you don't have a triangle, you're, you're in trouble. But you get what I'm saying. You, you, there's a reason there. You want to roll with people better than you. Um, if you really want to test the limits of the better parts of your game to see where they can be shut down, to test how much you can go into the tool bag when 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 game plan A and B and C doesn't work. Sparring in jiu-jitsu is absolutely essential to getting better at it. It's one of the few benefits of jiu-jitsu where you know, we're seeing more and more now that striking, they're trying to dial back some of that sparring even though it's necessary. In jiu-jitsu, you spar virtually every time you train. There's benefits to not sparring and just rolling and, and flow rolling or drilling, but you get the idea. So I firmly believe that in jiu-jitsu, you have to spar. And in wrestling, uh, you know, I don't know how it's adapted for MMA. Uh, you know, there's definitely wrestling drills you're going to have to do, takedown drills, takedown defense drills. you got to go live with some of that stuff. Again, drilling is key and important too. But, you know, getting a little bit more reps in the grappling department is definitely beneficial. In the striking, you know, obviously you want to save yourself some body and head trauma to the extent possible. I guess what I would just say is, Iron sharpens iron in certain contexts and then to an extent. In certain contexts, like I mentioned, jiu-jitsu, it really believe you have to roll with people better than you. Over at Henzo's, he's getting a bunch of black belts over there. Maybe some of them are as good as Luke Rockhold. Maybe some of them aren't. But basically, he's going to get top-level instruction. He's going to have a good game plan. He's going to have some decent, if not great, black belts that they're going to bring in from Henzo's and the Henzo network generally to come in for him. And that's going to be a big part of that. So... I'm sure in that department he's getting everything he needs. Wonder Boy Thompson is providing a lot of some of the technical instruction and striking to get him around. As you noted, he's got all the good coaching that he needs. You know, to what extent he's getting the reps and everything in between and putting it all together. You know, maybe there's a criticism there to be made, but, you know, 
the good thing about you know training with Daniel Cormier, some of the benefits there, if you're if you're Luke Rockhold or training with you know anyone at AKA or Kane Velasquez and a lot of other things, is you're gonna get a lot of people who can mix it up really well. You're gonna get a lot of guys who could put pressure on you in a lot of areas, which I think will make you cognizant about certain gaps and holes and opportunities that maybe you wouldn't get with less elite sparring partners. But the damage you're gonna do to yourself is gonna be significantly greater um, unless you have a really disciplined, focused, clear in many ways, restrictive training regimen. Um, also, I've mentioned this before, you're not going to get the same kind of coaching attention. I mean, this guy, Chris Wyman, is getting everyone's priority. You know, and I'm sure that Javier Mendez is doing everything he possibly can to prepare Luke Rockhold for this. Um, but it's not, maybe for this fight, it's the same. But generally speaking, over time, the level of specificity and the level of awareness and attention to detail overall that his entire coaching staff is able to get Chris Weidman is arguably going to be greater than some of the other things. So, you know, is he getting every kind of look and cranny, uh, or I should say every kind of look and nook and cranny that someone like Luke Rockhold can get? You know, maybe not necessarily. But when you begin to really examine how Chris Weidman trains, when he goes to Henzo's and they're bringing in all their best black belts and they're really elite brown belts, and they got some good guys over there, man. Trust me. They've got guys that can beat Luke Rockhold. Don't worry about it. And then you begin to look at the striking, and, you know, it's not it's not going to be the same as someone like DC who can really mix up in the wrestling. You know, there's going to be that putting it togetherness, I think, that um, maybe Rockhold has the advantage in. But the fact of the matter is, like, there's not a lot about best practices that Chris Wyman is not getting. Um, I think the only thing he's missing, as I mentioned before, is just getting guys who can um, put pressure on him in certain ways that maybe his sparring partners can't um, in terms of the overall aspect of things. But he's not taking nearly as as for a guy who gets injured as much as he does. He's not getting he's not getting he shouldn't be anyway, putting himself through the kinds of uh, physical rigors that, um, you know, some of the guys at AKA or ATT or whatever might go through. Um, and again, maybe those guys at ATT believe that's better for them or AKA that's better for them, you know, far be it for me to tell them otherwise, but, but, um, I can just remember very clearly my conversation with Chris Wyman about this. He was adamant that it was much better for him to do what he's doing because he got all the attention when he needed it. Um, and you know, to what extent he's getting the kind of sparring partners that can show him all the different levels and looks and angles. I don't know, but if he can get it all together or if he can get it in different places, um, and he's smart enough to put it all together, you begin to wonder if one method is better than the other or if they're roughly equivalent in the end. Um, I guess we're going to find out. In boxing, you would never need someone who was on the same level as you. You would never do that. You would never find – Cotto would never train with Canelo, assuming they had never fought before, to train for Golovkin. He would never do that. He would always get sparring partners less than you. I don't think that works for jiu-jitsu. I mentioned that before. And certainly in wrestling, you want people who can put pressure on you. But um, it's more about just finding yourself in certain situations and then working yourself out of that. And you can do that through drilling. You can do that through repetition. You can do that through situational sparring. You can do that through um, maybe they bring in people we don't even know about. Like there's ways to do that without having to constantly put yourself under the drumbeat of someone like, you know, a monster like Cain Velasquez. Again, to say though, I mean, training AKA, you can do worse, man. You know, those guys are prepared too. I think no, everyone would acknowledge that. Um, getting the opportunity to train with guys like Velasquez and Cormier and and whoever else 
who can just mix it up and put the kind of heat on you. And to the extent that they can show you best practices, I think part of the other thing with with a AKA system is someone like Cormier is going to show you instruction too. So in other words, maybe Rockhold doesn't have all that same coaching staff, but he's got Daniel Cormier, who is both part-time sparring partner and then part-time coach. He's just going to know tricks in the wrestling department with gripping and position and weight management and everything else um, that you know your average sparring partner may not. So I don't know. Maybe it's two different ways to get to the same place. You know, we'll, we'll find out. Here we go. Uh, well, not part of the Sarah Longo team. He seems to train frequently with Stephen Thompson. Wonderboy could give him similar looks to what Rockhold can do on the feet. He's got the ground game on lockdown. In terms of training partners, when it comes to training, he's with guys from Henzo's while in camp. That's also true. Question is, is he facing anybody who's got the takedown defense that Rockhold has? Um, that might be a bit of an issue. That's why the fight's magnificent, right? Because on the feet, I probably give an edge to um, Rockhold. If they got to the ground and Weidman was on top, I'd give a slight edge to Weidman, but Rockhold can hold himself there. Um, pure wrestling, obviously I give the big advantage to Weidman. MMA wrestling, we're going to see. We're going to see. There's a lot of just unknowns for two guys that are pretty well known, um, interestingly enough. But the one thing I like about Chris Weidman so much is that you know, and it, we mentioned this before during the Ronda Rousey Holly Holm discussion. You tell him to go do something; he's got enough ability to make adjustments or to follow a very strict game plan. Either way, um, you know, he doesn't rely on basically one way to win and then fights through it. He sort of says, um, "There's a few conditions that have to be established for this fight to happen. I'm going to make sure they're established in order to do that." Can he do that against Luke Rockhold? That's the question. It is raining here in Washington, D.C. All right. Uh, slated championship fights first. Even though I am not a fan of the team, sympathy uh, of Real Madrid. Yes, thank you. I don't even want to talk about it. Uh, then to the subject itself. At the moment, we all know, excuse me, at the moment, we know almost all the coming championship fights, or at least the very likely ones, with the exception of home. And I was looking over the list. It was one of the more impressive I've seen in a while. So on a scale of one to five, how excited and intrigued are you with the following championship fights? Wyman Rockhold is in a definite five. Aldo McGregor is a five. Dos Anjos, Cerrone's by a three. Lawler Condit, three and a half. Uh, Dillashaw Cruz, five. Verdun Velasquez, two. I'll put that at a four. Uh, Johnson Cejudo, let's assume that that gets made. It's not made, but let's assume that. Um, four. Uh, Jacek Gedalia, four and a half. Uh, Cormier Jones two five yeah there's a lot of excellent title fights coming up assuming that these last three were made Cormier Jones Yenjechek Gadelia and then Johnson Cejudo um, to your point though these are a lot of excellent things to to, to expect here let's see one ninety four Mick Weidman versus Aldo and the possible check kick subplot um, 2013's UFC one sixty eight which was Weidman versus Silva two was for more reasons than one a very memorable night on that night. Um, Weidman's knee greeted Silva's shin. This is written way too long, so I'm trying to bring it all together. Uh, a Brazilian who, like his 145-pound compatriot, had utilized the tax on many occasions. The 145-pound compatriot in particular countless times. In fact, perhaps no one more than a smaller Brazilian, blah, 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 which brings me to Connor. You see, 
McGregor has a very interesting pass. 2010, he virtually wideman his opponent before there was even a wideman. Chaos FC7, McGregor versus Dylan. There's a gif of it. The following is Connor's opponent quoted years after suffering a foot injury from the first round TKO loss to McGregor 2010. And though the aesthetics of the moment were in no way grotesque, it did, however, leave a lasting memory on McGregor's victim. Quote, it was basically the same thing that happened to Anderson Silva, only it was my foot instead of my shin. I didn't break my foot, but every muscle and ligament was completely obliterated. And you see the gif above. I'm in no way predicting a leg or foot injury to Aldo. I do, however, wonder if Kavanaugh hopes that a few hard checks might deter a possibly aggressive or, or, and emotional Aldo. If so, this could very well be a subplot game changer to the main event. By taking away the leg threat, Kavanaugh leaves the Brazilian with not much more than this four-inch reach disadvantage to truly work with. Perhaps Aldo might have to dust off that world-class BJJ. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot of different things. here. I just want to make a note about when you think about Aldo McGregor and you think about a, a fight like Weidman Rockhold, one of, the two, one of the similarities that binds the two at a very... Um, zoomed out way but nevertheless it's worth thinking about when you see a fight like home versus rousey for example where someone says why was home able to win well she negated some stuff on the ground but really only one time the reason why she won that fight in my judgment first and foremost is she was able to clinch break and then the clinch breaking allowed the power and the punching and the skill differential and the stand-up to truly shine Rousey would have eaten punches standing up no matter what. But if you take a Holly Holm who has no clinch-breaking skills, she gets taken to the ground several more times. And as I pondered before, how many more times does Holm have to get taken to the ground before you begin to say, this favors Rousey much more? One time apparently was not enough, but maybe two times is. Maybe three times is. Maybe five times is. Imagine five times going to the ground with Rousey. I like her chances to catch something within those five times. That's just my opinion. But these are pretty singular terms. Clinch breaking and ultimately outside boxing. And then, of course, she finished with a head kick. But that was part of um, you know, a rehearsed and well-established uh, finishing sequence that she has used a number of times in her career. With something like Rockhold versus Weidman and Aldo versus McGregor, I want to be very clear about this. Look, maybe this winds up looking like McGregor versus Poirier, where he goes in there, hits some heavy behind the head, not intentionally, just, you know, in the course of battle, and then finishes him off real quick. Maybe this works out like Aldo versus Mendez, where um, fence grabbing notwithstanding, he stuffs the takedowns and then knees him before the first round and then closes the show. Maybe maybe it goes that way. I don't think it's going to. I don't find that to be, anyway, the most likely of all possibilities. You never know, but it doesn't seem very likely. What seems to me the likeliest thing is going to be when it's all said and done, there are going to be innumerable factors in both cases that won or lost them the fight. And not just individual moments, oh, Weidman got mount, or Rockhold landed a liver shot, or um, something like that. But there's going to be just an array of things. There'll be patterns, for sure. There'll be clear positions where one guy is better than the other. Uh, clear spaces where one guy has an advantage. But I just want to be clear about this. Everyone's like, what about the leg kicks of Aldo? What about him? What about the big power of Connor? What about it? Like that in and of itself is not going to win or lose. It's going to be a lot of things. It's going to be a lot of things. These guys are all way too tough and they're way too good. You don't just beat someone like that with like a singular weapon. Rousey is very, very good. But what we saw was she had a really lopsided skill set. 
She's really heavily talented in one area and barren in the other. That's not these guys. Conor McGregor doesn't have the best takedown defense in the world. And Jose Aldo's got good takedowns, but it's not a major differential there. And Jose Aldo has excellent jiu-jitsu, but Conor McGregor's got pretty good defensive jiu-jitsu. It's not a necessary... Even Ryan Hall saying it's not that big a difference that people might think. There's a difference. It's not that huge. He can handle himself a little bit there. And I don't think necessarily that Conor McGregor's the striker that Jose Aldo is, but he's got a power advantage. And that'll matter some, but I don't know how much. The point being is they're really closely contested on a bunch of different fault lines. And when you have that happen, it's going to be, again, maybe it's a 30-second knockout, who knows. But all the evidence points to a pitched battle that is going to take a lot of examination to then peel back exactly what happened from a strategy standpoint to an execution standpoint. If one guy gets injured, if an eye closes, if they get dropped with a body shot, what if, how did this judge see that? It's going to be it's going to be a lot of that. Now, to answer your question about the leg kicks, this was a guy who tried to go inside and got blocked. So they were standing opposite, and he tried to go inside and got blocked. You know, Jose Aldo's no fool, and he's had his he's had his feet blow up on. Um, kicks that have gone wrong before. You go back to the Korean zombie fight, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, he's still going to he, he's gonna be on his... Jose Aldo is not just a guy who can punch and leg kick. Um, he is lightning quick, and can he's quicker than McGregor, and can get away in short spots. The only thing for me is, to what extent is he going to surrender um, octagon territory? To what extent is he going to play a bit of a bullfighter matador game? Um, to what extent is McGregor going to play a bull, uh, bullfighter matador game? Because to the extent to which he marches forward at the speed and willingness, that's going to affect the spacing of Aldo to both strike, strike, and get away at an exit. He's not going to strike and then just stay, stick in the pocket with him. Not for very much anyway. Maybe a couple of instances. So when you ask, well, what about the leg kick? I ask, what about the conditions that make the leg kick possible? What about the spacing in between him? What about how close his back is to the cage? What about his exits? All of these are going to be determined by footwork and spacing and how much McGregor wants to encroach or not and how much Aldo wants to let him encroach or can't control the encroachment. There's so many variables that make this possible and not just the inside leg kick, but the outside leg kick. Um, how much he wants to go to the outside, then switch sides and go high. Um, how much he wants to go outside and then switch step and then throw a flying knee. Like there's all different kinds of possibilities here. I just want to be clear about this. We don't really know, but pointing out singularly, how are the leg kicks going to affect this fight? It could be a big factor. It may not be a big factor at all. And not just because of the checking, but because of where McGregor puts himself to make Aldo pay for it, irrespective of any checking. A lot of different factors enable the, the, an environment where leg kicks thrive. A lot of different factors take that away. And both guys have to negotiate that through physical violence. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a hell of a ride, man. I ju just one more time I'm going to say for Wyman Rockhold and Aldo McGregor, what binds them together is the fault lines on which they're going to compete. There are guys that each have advantages in certain spots. It's not enough to give one guy a runaway in any one area. It's it's really not. Maybe maybe in pure wrestling, Weidman over Rockhold, but even like in MMA wrestling, Rockhold's take on defense is excellent. Um, it's going to be interesting, man. It is going to be interesting.
Uh, this fighter is the future of the UFC. Luke, your thoughts? The Aldo Anderson, um, the spider middleweight. Man, what do you want to say about this Reebok stuff, huh? I just, uh, I just don't know anymore. Let me say this. You know, um, first of all, a couple things against Reebok here. There are all kinds of problems pop, popping up on their website. Yesterday, I saw it from my own eyes. They had um, Anthony Pettis's in the description of one of his T-shirts listed as, you know, show your support for the mauler. Um, they had cut and, cut and pasted everything on um, one of their uh, championship shirts where every champion was listed as an interim champ. I saw, I just retweeted it. Um, they had, you know, celebrate your UFC 189, Conor McGregor, I think a t-shirt or a fighter kit. Cause he had already, they had, they had written in the description that he had beaten Jose Aldo. Um, there's look, you like, we're talking about a forest full of stones. And almost every time you turn over a rock, there's worms under it. It's kind of what we're talking about here. Like they need to go through, I don't, I don't know. I, they let me start here. They need to go through and scrub that site, scrub it. And I actually reached out to Reebok yesterday, and this was a question I asked them, and they said they were going to get back to me about it. I, let me see if they've gotten back to me about it. No, not yet. Um, and and the question was, a have you hired enough people internally with core competencies in MMA, and b if you don't want to answer that question or that's not the appropriate one, have you made a renewed push in light of recent circumstances to hire people with core competencies in MMA? Because there's, there's a, there's a reputation interestingly about MMA fans that I think is partly true, which is to say, if you trip the alarm, they go crazy, but it's not that hard to avoid tripping it. So here's what I mean. There's a reputation that MMA fans have. Again, it is somewhat deserved. And if you set them off about this, they'll chew you to pieces. That MMA fans basically don't like carpetbaggers. Carpetbagger is a term that comes from 19th century United States where basically without getting too detailed about it, after the Civil War, there was a period in the South called Reconstruction where they were trying to basically rebuild a, you know, a devastated part of the country. And you would find northern politicians and others as well, basically opportunists, coming down from the north and trying to wield power in the south or any number of things. And they were called carpetbaggers, and it was believed that they were taking all their possessions. And uh, the, the the name is 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 uh, irrelevant, but it has a even today you will find people who, if you're not from the south, or you try and post up there. If you find some old traditional families, they will call you carpetbagger. I've seen it done. I, I went to high school in the South, regrettably, but I did. Um, it is true. MMA fans don't like carpetbaggers. If you're not a Hayabusa or a Venom or something like this, a, a, a brand that is interwoven into the community, if you're not a sprawl, right, they are going to judge you with extraordinary amounts early on of suspicion. It's true. They will. That That is, I don't think, without... It's very hard to argue against that, I think. Hang on one second. But, here, but here's the other far, part about that. 
it is true that MMA fans don't like carpetbaggers. And if you set them off with the carpetbagger alarm, you're seeing what happens. They're going to chew you to pieces. But the truth is, if you do your homework and you dig in and you make the requisite steps to bring down their guard, they'll go all in. Reebok does not have any long-term association with mixed martial arts in any capacity. But if you imagine that they had come out with, let's say, let's say not great, but even decent fight kits. I think some folks would say the championship fight kits are better than anything else. But imagine that was like the baseline of good, and they, and they got better from there, and that they weren't like all these bad colors, and that they had paid more, you know, because they were really kind of aware. They had done their due diligence um, about the situation with fighter pay and, um, and that they didn't have all these mistakes. I truly think that fairly quickly fans would have come around to them. They didn't have this native background in the sport. They didn't have their their uh, any kind of tenure whatsoever. So they had work to do to get the introduction. But the UFC can put people over and make fans like them in ways that very few other promoters can, or very few other businesses can, really. And I think one of the chief failures to date, and I don't think it's something they can't overcome, but one of the chief sort of failures for me is they never took seriously the tripping of the carpetbagger alarm. Because once you hit that, then it becomes a much more difficult task to win the trust of MMA fans. If you win it up front without setting off their alarm bells, you can pretty much ease right on in afterwards, and, and they'll accept you for most of your faults. Uh, you know, it's not like Hayabusa makes perfect gear or something like that. Um, but if you just try and rush in and you make all these comical errors and you display yourself to, I mean, it's not just that they're manufacturing, you know, questionable, you know, what is the value of this, the build quality of the gear, although there's less a concern about that, but you're getting Leo Machida's birthday wrong and you don't know who's champion and you don't know what nicknames belong to who. And you're literally inventing a, a, a person called Anderson Aldo. And then you're blaming it on a design error or a printing manufacturer. It's not a printing error. It's not, it's not some low level guy at a printing shop uh, who, uh, or a facility who messed this up. You took this shirt, you put it on someone, you took a picture and then you put it on the website and no one in that chain of custody did a damn thing anything to, to stop it because they didn't know they were supposed to. They, they didn't have the core competencies to do so. Um, and again, you know, to what extent they got rushed into this deal when they made the announcement, I think back in December, and they said this will kick forth into July. That's a huge workload that Reebok had to accept. And I really believe that a lot of these website errors are just holdovers from that initial point. No one ever went back and scrubbed them out. So I don't know that these are new mistakes that they're making. I mean, they could be, but it seems to me a lot of them are still from that initial push into the market. Okay, fellas, ladies over at Reebok, you have got to get it together. You have got, you, you are, you have set off, you have tripped virtually every single carpet bagging alarm that MMA fans have at this point. And I'm not saying they've reached the point of no return, but wow, have you dug a hole. Whoa. You have dug a tremendous, tremendous hole just to get back to, you know, equitability. Just to get back to a level of general tolerance. Um, you know, and I don't know to what extent the numbers are on fight kit sales or anything else. I'm just going to tell you personally until I see them, I, I, there is very little anecdotal evidence to suggest they're selling well. They very well could be. I have no, I have no ability to say that they have not sold well. 
Um, but I'm not going to believe anyone's word of mouth. I'm going to see numbers. And until I do, um, you know, I will remain um, <laughs> cautiously pessimistic. Uh, I'll put it that way. But for me, that's the big deal here. It's, you know, it's, oh, Anderson Silva versus Anderson Aldo is not really the issue. The issue was when you were introduced to this sport, you did not take seriously that initial screen that uh, the fan base needs to see you um, work through. You tried to overrun it. And again, whose fault is that? Because they were just, you know, trying to hustle this deal through on the timeline. You know, I do have some sympathy for them in that regard. That is a very difficult task to accomplish. But this deal has been in effect since July. So July, August, September, October, November, and now we're in December. No one went back through the website and scrubbed out those problems. You didn't hire someone who knows about MMA to go back and scrub them out. Um, you know, you're relying on basically fans on the internet to discover them. And then once you discover them, you take them out. You know, this is a very bad way to do business. This is not smart. You, they need to find, it's not just hiring designers, they need to find quality control uh, employees in the various chain of custody before items go to market to make sure that they, you got, it's not even just getting the names right, that they comport with what MMA fan sensibilities and expectations are. Like, you don't need to be the MMA fan to get Leo Machida's birthday right. That's just one thing they can fix tomorrow. But, you know, you're calling him Connor the Notorious McGregor. Well, that's not actually how his name goes. It's the Notorious Connor McGregor. And these subtle details matter. These subtle de- the, the, the fight fan, to, if you're a true dyed-in-the-wool Connor McGregor fan, you don't call him Connor the Notorious McGregor. You call him Josh the Dentist Near, right? It's the Notorious Connor McGregor. And they have a shirt that got that backward as well. And in that same shirt, they said his style was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, it's really not. You know, I mean, he's good at it, but that's not his style. Um, and so I feel like that's what happened. I feel like they never took the carpetbagging seriously. Um, you know, and if you ask yourself, if Hayabusa had gotten that deal, and Hayabusa is not Reebok, for better or for worse, but if Hayabusa had gotten that deal and they had gone all in with Hayabusa, maybe Hayabusa would have done the same thing with the fighter payouts. Who knows? Maybe they would have taken the same deal. But I guarantee you this. They wouldn't have called anyone Anderson Aldo. And they wouldn't have called anyone Connor the Notorious McGregor. And they wouldn't have called Rafael or Rafael Dos Anjos interim champion or Fabricio Verdum or anyone else who has one of those shirts. They just would never have done that. They would never have called anyone Giblert. They just, it's, you know. They, if nothing else, had those core competencies. You guys at Reebok didn't hire anyone away from Hayabusa. Companies do this all the time, man. And to the extent there's non-competes, maybe you can't get around that. But um, hiring people from other companies, people go from Google to Apple all the time and back and forth um, because everyone wants everyone else's expertises. Anyway, man, it's a shame because I think they're really trying over there. I really do. I think they're good people. Every time they come out and they, and they get so excited about working with MMA, I do believe there's natural enthusiasm there. I do believe they see this as a big opportunity. Yeah, to make some cash, of course, but, you know, to be involved with a growing sector and a big brand like UFC, like, I think that they, you know, they, they it's not just seeing value from a monetary sense, but they see value from, wow, what a what a tremendous opportunity in life to do something of 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 sweeping grandeur, of of ambition, of scale. The scale of it all is is quite remarkable. Um, but the scale is irrelevant if the details are all jacked to pieces. 
if you don't ingratiate yourself when you make an introduction into a relatively closed off fan base, um, they're gonna they're gonna chew you up. But if you make that effort and you and you clear that relatively easily cleared hurdle, um, they'll ride with you. They'll go. You become part of the family. It's absolutely true. You just gotta pass it, and they never. They have, they have, they didn't clear that, and they have subsequently not cleared additional hurdles when they had a chance to redo themselves. And let me say something lastly about this, and then we'll move on. Those that that next generation of fight kits better blow the doors off of fans. It better blow the doors off of them. If I'm, if anyone at Reebok ever hears this, please take my recommendations. You need to take as much time as possible to make sure those are killer. You need to test them in focus groups. You need to go over them with every kind of fine tooth comb. You need to hire qualitative, excuse me, uh, uh, yes, qualitative experts who have MMA core competencies to go over this. We're not saying hire fans off the street, but you can find people, it's barbous, you can find people who can do this kind of thing. Because I, th- I think the good news is if they come out with a brilliant, brilliant round two of fight kits that makes so much more sense, that solve for so many more problems, that look kind of cool, that really make you feel like if you're a Jacek fan, that that matters the most. And there's UFC and there's Reebok on there, but you know they really get all the things we had detailed correct. I think fans may say, okay, it was a rough start, but I can come around now. If the, and then if the next gen of t-shirts come out, and you're like, you know what? They learned their lesson. I, I, I think that um, a lot of this is repairable. I truly do. It's a big hole to get out of, but nothing can fix a big hole like a big new wave of really great products. But if they botch the second round of this, that is to me very big trouble. You know, if you get in there and you make another round of fight kits and another round of gear and they look just like basura, I don't know what to say about it after that. I really don't. And some people are saying, well, you know, Reebok is intentionally taking. that. That, that is ludicrous. Uh, Reebok is... If they want to get out of the deal, they would just get out of the deal. I'm sure there's clauses that they could cite that would enable them to terminate the agreement. But purposely sabotaging your own product and damaging your brand and damaging your brand's reputation to simply exit a deal that is quite salvageable um, is a nonsense theory. I know it's hard to believe that they can make this many errors, but that's sort of my point. I think that they, what I don't want to see them do is compound their first error, first major set of errors anyway, and trying to fix that by rushing into a new line of product. Eat S right now. Have them mock you for calling Pettis the Mauler and for making a McGregor kit that has a USA logo on it and whatever else. Just take it. And then come correct the next time. People like MMA fans will come around a second time. But if you say, we botched this line, we got to get something out fast to cover this up, you will make the exact same mistake again. They have no, the margin for error on them is going to be, every time one of these errors comes out, the margin goes like that. It gets a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller. The the patience that the fan base has with them. So, uh, you know, we'll see. Maybe they can keep pumping this out and maybe they're selling like hotcakes and none of this matters. Maybe this whole rant is worth nothing. But I find that very hard to believe. I don't see a lot of positivity about them. Um, as it currently stands, uh, I haven't been to a UFC event in a while, but for folks I know who have gone to one or many of them, folks I work with, um, not a lot of evidence to suggest that they are selling particularly well. But again, I don't know. I, I, 
That's just all anecdotal evidence. That's not real evidence. So I should be very careful about saying that. Maybe they are selling wealth, and then this whole this whole uh, speech is, is is stupid. But if if I'm at if I'm at Reebok, I'm having an all hands on deck meeting. Whoever's in charge of this, to the extent possible, and I'm saying, okay, number one, <laughs> we're going to scrub the S out of that website from beginning to end, every single page. We're going to go through. We're going to find people. We're going to hire an auxiliary committee if we have to of just MMA donks to go through and fix this because that is unacceptable. Number two, I don't care what the launch date projective is for the second round of fight kits. They're going to be ready when they're ready. And we're going to have focus groups and we're going to have beta testing and we're, we're going to have all kinds of different things to get this right. Do we need to hire people from indigenous MMA brands that understand this space better than we do? If so, let's hire them. Do we need to do more market research about what MMA fans' consumer preferences are? Then let's do it. Because if it's just a back-and-forth dialogue between Reebok and UFC, and it's not really involving the community, which is kind of how my sense worked about the first round of fight kits, um, they're, they are destined to get it wrong a second time. So there you go. Luke, what is your take on MMA shills and drones? Do they exist in your opinion? And if so, are they actually paid by Zupa and UFC in your opinion? Um, there have been historic uh, documented cases of astroturfing, but if there are, there are not many. And even if there are, I don't care. And frankly, I don't think they have to do that anymore. The UFC's got a pretty real, large-scale fan base that will go to bat for them uh, and praise them when they do well. I don't, you know, to the extent that they need... I think the astroturfing came when they were during the... Or at least the known astroturfing came when they were in the Spike TV era when, you know, the landscape was a little bit more open. When um, there was an IFL and Elite XC and, and everything else, uh, it's pretty clear who's in, who's in charge these days. Uh, fantasy matchup. Daniel Cormier versus Chris Weidman. Look, if Chris Weidman moved, to, moved up to light heavyweight and successfully maintained the effectiveness he had at middleweight... Who would you pick to win that in a five-round contest? That's a tough call. Um, is Chris Weidman effective at 205 pounds as he is at 185? You know, I don't know. Um, I might pick Weidman. I might pick Weidman. Uh, another Reebok question. I'll only answer if we didn't get into anything. Reebok staff lacks a passion for and knowledge of MMA. That's why their product is uh, substandard. We're talking about inexcusable errors. Where's the quality control? It would take literally 30 seconds to check the text on the product thoroughly, and yet they're not doing it. No passion at all, no pride in their work, big red flag. I am shocked that the UFC entered into a partnership with a company so incompetent. A couple, let me defend them here a little bit. I do not think it is a lack of passion, although it was clearly a lack of knowledge about MMA, number one. Number two, I don't think the UFC entered into a partnership with a company so incompetent. The guy from CrossFit had issues about Reebok, but it wasn't incompetency as such. The general tenor of his criticism was basically a lack of imagination on their part. Um, but it wasn't issues like this where they were making up just you know grotesque errors. Um, they may have had other other qualms about their participation in the, their tenure deal, but it wasn't. It wasn't this. This is a new frontier of fail, unfortunately. Um, so it's not exactly the same, but in Reebok's defense, I do not get the sense that it is a lack of pa passion. 
it is a complete and total distance from a community. They are only now engaging. They didn't start engaging the community until the deal was already signed and announced and in place. You know what I mean? They didn't start. I mean, of course, to some extent, you know, you're not going to start signing deals until everything is already in place to sign those deals. But to me, it's like you only went to all these gyms after the fact to, you know, well, we're going to make, um, you know, AKA and, or not AKA, I'm sorry, um, uh, SBG and I think uh, maybe maybe X Gym, you know, we're going to make these, you know, uh, Reebok gyms. Like you didn't visit them at all beforehand. You didn't do any research about them. You didn't figure out who was in control and what it all mean and what the relevance is of John Cavanaugh to Irish MMA. Like these are only things you discovered after the fact. That's a problem for me, man. It's a problem. You're doing your homework on the fly and it shows. But I don't think it's a lack of caring. I just don't think they anticipated this kind of pushback. I don't, it just seems to me they were totally unaware that, and it's not just a hardcore fan base, it's a casual fan base too that kind of follows along on this a little bit. You know, it, the degree to which that's true changes. But, you know, the people blasting their door down about it care enough to make the point clear that um, you got to get someone in that company through the chain of custody of product rollout, some ones who, who watch MMA. <laughs> it's just kind of how it has to be, man. You don't have to tell the people at Hayabusa to watch jiu-jitsu. You, they do. You know. If you had to ask someone at Reebok, who's the best jiu-jitsu guy in the world right now? Could anyone in that company say? Nope. I guarantee they couldn't tell you. They would probably tell you like Marcelo Garcia, even though he's been retired basically forever. Um, or just, you know, totally inactive anyway. But Hayabusa, they signed Bushesha. He's been inactive too, but you know, for much less longer. And even Adidas, you know, um, people were trying to say, well, you know, um, Luke Rockhold and Robbie Lawler, well, they're sponsored by Adidas. And that's true. It's true and it's not true. Like it is true. Like they are sponsored by Adidas. These, these guys should be proud of that fact. But it's also really it's it's ACS, it's Adidas Combat Sports, which is like a boutique sidearm to the company. In fact, if you go to uh, Adidas' website, you look at their list of uh, sponsored athletes. They're not even on there, and they should be, but they're not. Um, but to their credit, the boutique side is the one that understands the space. Ask anybody who's ever worn, and they're my. you've seen my reviews on my own YouTube channel, Adidas geese, and not the judo geese, the new jiu-jitsu geese, they are tremendous. They are tremendous, tremendous geese. They're impossible to dislike. Um, because the people who are involved in that process know the space. And that's jujitsu in particular, but I just mean, you know, who do they get to, 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 to rep them? Clark Gracie. They didn't sign like some random UFC black belt. You know, they went, they went and got the king of the Omoplata. This is what I'm talking about, man. Like, you know, um, you can't just march into MMA, put a flag in the ground and say, you know, get in line for gear. It doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, all right. Switching gears here a little bit. Uh, look, now that Benson Henderson's UFC contract is up, where do you see him going? I see him staying at UFC. 
I do not see him going to Bellator. Now, could be wrong. Maybe Bellator puts out a huge offer for him. But he is worth a lot to Bellator. He's worth a lot to the UFC. It's worth – he has general worth to the UFC irrespective of outside circumstances. When you add in outside circumstances, so we like this guy already. He's got value for us. Plus, our competitor really wants him. Now he has additional value to us. Now, in terms of what they may offer him and in terms of what it all may mean in the end, um, you know, who knows? Maybe in negotiations they decide, well, you know what? He is worth a lot to us, but, you know, we're never going to stop Viacom and, and Bellator from overpaying for a guy. You know, you can see that circumstance as well. But, you know, he calls himself the once and future king, and I just think he still has grand ambition. He's still very, very capable as a fighter. He's winning fights at, you know, I mean, Masvidal was a lightweight for a time, too, but he's winning fights in two weight classes, and I don't know when he's going to get back to the top, at, if he is, at uh, lightweight, but you get the idea. Like, he's got he's got a lot of, you know, he can, he can fill in on short notice. He um, has been good for free TV ratings. Like, there's just a lot to like about what he brings, and I don't think UFC's blind to that at all. And so, you know, uh, again, we'll see what kind of contract. If, if Bellator's even interested in him, we'll see what kind of contract he gets. And I think it was smart to try and wait out people like that. I really do. But um, I, I have a hard time. We'll see, man. We'll see. Maybe maybe Bellator signs and maybe they come off their pockets for it. But, well, you know, it's, it's not going to be automatic. I'm glad he's trying, but it's, you know, ultimately I just kind of see him staying at UFC at the end of the day. But we'll see. All right. All right, Irish fans. Luke, I get the feeling that there won't be as many Irish fans at 194 as there were for 189. Do you think that's accurate? Um, it's probably accurate since a bunch of them probably spent all their money to go to 189. But, um, A, if you went to 189, you certainly got your money's worth. And, B, uh, I suspect there'll still be enough to notice for sure. Same for Brazilians too. I, I wouldn't worry. It's going to be... If you're looking for an electric atmosphere, I suspect you will find it. Someone said there's going to be an ungodly amount of brawls. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it, man. Two insanely passionate fan bases to differing ways, I suppose. But, um, yeah. Uh, hey, Luke, if and when Nurmagomedov comes back early next year, so let's say he wasn't saying before March, so let's say uh, April or May, who would you like to see him matched up against? The winner of Cowboy and Dos Anjos? No, he needs a tune-up match. I do not want to see him thrust into a title picture at all. The guy's been out for a very long time. He needs to get his legs back under him. He's not going to look he'll look good because he's that talented. But, you know, we've seen what happens when good fighters take fights after being out for a very long time. And then Cain Velasquez's case, try it at altitude. Didn't so much go his way. Didn't even look like himself. I think most people would be like, well, you know what? If Velasquez lost but looked like himself, okay. you know. And to what extent Verdum made him look like not himself, there's an argument to be made. But it's just hard to ignore the how much the, the outside circumstances uh, played a role in that fight too. Keys to victory. In your opinion, what are the keys for Aldo, McGregor, Wyman, and Rockhold respectively? For Aldo, I think it's going to be stick and move. I think it's going to be not tiring out um so not a lot of wrestling early not a lot of jujitsu early um because those won't tire mcgregor out he will reserve and we've seen he will conserve energy in those spaces he'll lock up full guard wait for a guard pass and then scramble to stand that's a very good way to save energy you know it doesn't say much about his guard but it says a lot about his uh decision making in in key situations um staying away from the left hand 
of McGregor. I think backing him up is key. I think if you just let McGregor keep marching forward on you, he's eventually going to have success. Maybe not. Maybe for 25 minutes you can avoid it, but you never see McGregor backing up. Let's get him backing up. Let's see what happens when he backs up. Let's see how good he is fighting off the back foot, if he can really plant his weight. Because if he comes forward, that's when he begins to unload. But if you're backing him up a little bit, that's and then you know not so easy to do. But same thing was for you know Weidman versus Machida before he fought uh, Weidman. It's like, well, the key is you got to back Machida up. Well, how are you going to do that? Weidman walked right across the cage and marched him down. That's what I'm talking about. Like those kinds of things. Like, can you establish the conditions that make the rest of victory possible? Um, so that's key. Landing, I think. I think mixing up his kicks, not going to them the same ones over and over again. Um. And then for me, for for Aldo is going to be, uh, yeah, those are his keys. You know, it's a lot of defensive things because he can pop a shot and get out of the way. Um, you know, and then I don't, I don't, I just don't think wrestling is to be a big part of it. But whatever. Uh, for McGregor, again, walking forward, um, finding ways to set up the left hand, stuffing takedowns to the extent that you can, not being overly aggressive with the footwork, but proactive, um, and. Um, you know, finding a way around those leg kicks, either by getting in close boxing range or something else. Uh, Weidman, Weidman has got to mix it up. And I think if you can get the fight to the ground, that's an easy way for him to win. Not to say that Rockhold can't hold himself there, but but uh, he can do a lot of good passing and controlling from there. And he's got, I think one thing people realize about Weidman, he's got tremendous ground and pound when he uses it. Uh, good submissions there too. So I like Weidman if he can do that. If he can't really mix it up, he's forced to strike. I'm not saying he's out of his depth, but that's, for me, an area where Rockhold has an advantage. Also, staying in boxing range and not kicking range. Um, you know, Rockhold likes to really, you you know, go in between those two ranges. If you can take one away and force them onto one term into just boxing. If you're in boxing range, you're also in wrestling range, right? Because for a double, you should be able to put your arm out and touch someone. That's the range for a double. Um, and that takes away his kicking game for the most part and uh, gives you an opportunity to wrestle. And for Rockhold, keeping it a kicky range, for sure. I don't even mind if he backs up or not. Better when he goes forward, but he can fight backing up, too. We've seen it. Um, but for, for, for me, for, if I'm Rockhold, I'm thinking, i got to let all my weapons fly here. I have a really great chance of distance. I don't want to give him a takedown from the kicking range, but at the same time, um, I don't want to take away all my weapons. That's the one area about the kicking range where – it makes it hard. If I'm Weidman, I want to take away that kicking range or at least force Rockhold to make bad choices about the kicking range where he gets a little desperate or he reaches on one or whatever the case may be. But you, you, traditionally you would say, well, you don't want Rockhold to kick because um, he can get taken down. But if I'm Rockhold, I've got, I would trust my takedown defense. I would work on get, getting caught and getting out of it because I don't want to lose those weapons. Well, those weapons, when they can fly – it's just something that a lot of guys can't handle. It really mixes up his striking in such a dynamic way. So I, you know, you don't want to be reckless with your kicking, but you want an option. You want it there. You want to have it. All right. Uh, is USADA testing really random out of competition? So folks are asking a, a lot about this. Um, you know, the number of testing is not what they said it was going to be, and they're mostly testing people in competition, not out. These are all fair critiques, but, I mean, USADA clearly stated when the program launched that it would take them a while to ramp up to where they wanted to be. Now, we'll see if they ever get there. I'm not saying we shouldn't monitor them, um, but if they're not 
performing as many tests and as a function, you know, the two are related, right? Like if you're only doing in competition testing, you're by definition cutting off the number of tests. So you're not testing at the appropriate window or in the volume. The two are the two are closely related there, but I don't think that's a permanent condition. I, I just think it's a temporary thing that they're having to having to work around or work, you know, build up to. McGregor's approach to the Aldo fight. The recent article Kavanaugh posted states McGregor will be like the Matrix. No, it would be like McGregor being in the Matrix, not that he would be the Matrix, suggesting he will be flashy and elusive. His last sight saw him walk Chad down and bang. This may be a smokescreen from Kavanaugh, so which is most likely approach? Um, probably a mix of the two. Again, if you wanted to fight Jose Aldo, where is he best? He's going to be best at kicking range, giving him time to unload. Unloading combinations or whatever the case may be. And if you pressure him, you might eat a shot, but you stand a better chance of getting your own off, I think. Uh, but at the same time, maybe you want him to commit so that you can counter. But I don't know. He's, he's For a guy who can hit and get out of the way, a guy who can duck a punch, who can slip a punch, change angles, unload and move, you know, I don't know to what extent being elusive is necessarily the best idea. But again, just to be clear about the analogy, he didn't say McGregor was the Matrix. He said it would be like being in the Matrix where you can do all kinds of crazy tricks. What can Floyd Mayweather accomplish as a manager in MMA? Is Floyd possible's is Floyd's possible end goal to free the fighters from the UFC and let them fight for other promotions? A lot of Golden Boy fighters left to fight for PBC, Al Heyman, and boxing. What do you think Floyd and Al Heyman is planning and scheming, Luke? Well, Al Heyman's got a lot uh, to to worry about, including lawsuits. As it stands, uh, I don't know that Floyd has any huge managerial goals in MMA. Certainly. Um, you know, he's taken some boxers under his wing, but not a tremendous amount. And that's boxing where he comes from. You know, maybe John Jones, there's, the, you know, maybe a, a fighter here or a fighter there he might take under his wing. You know, uh, certainly if Floyd's career is any kind of indication, he would look for maximum amounts of money and protections. Um, I think what I'm waiting for, and I don't know that it will ever happen in our lifetime, but, you know, you never want to limit yourself by your own poor imagination. I am waiting, and you're going to laugh because, you know, if you lived through the whole Fedor M1 deal, um, you just think this is crazy. But you know what, man? Times, they are changing. I am waiting for someone to set up a promotional company with their name in it as a fighter. Canelo has one. Mayweather has one. I mean, a bunch of these guys have one. Khan has one. Um, you could just go down the list. I am waiting for John Jones promotions. I am waiting for Conor McGregor promotions where they do shows outside the UFC, you know, um, but then they co-promote a show to get the guy's services. You say it's impossible. And certainly I would argue that is extraordinarily unlikely, but what's interesting to me is that uh, in the absence of vociferous UFC brass response to fighter discontent in the media fighter discontent is getting a lot more play for a lot longer and it's beginning to build a little bit is it building towards something i don't know 
hard to say. This it's still too early. Um, what will it mean in the end? We'll find out. But it used to be years ago, if a fighter said something like what John Jones said or something else, there would be an immediate response or pretty close to immediate. And now you're just not getting that. And as a consequence, these ideas are beginning to slowly carry a little more currency than they once were. Um, so we're a far ways off from anyone saying, I'm going to create, you know, John Jones Promotions, Inc. But if you're Mayweather, part of the strategy behind doing that was that you can co-promote and you have, certainly you have to get a promoter's license to do that. But then um, you begin to entitle yourself to a much larger share of the pie financially. You know, and we'll get to these questions about um, Lorenzo saying, well, we pay guys the most, which is both typically true and also irrelevant, but whatever. Uh, um, so I don't know what Floyd wants to do by, by putting John Jones on the money team. It's really hard to say. I don't think he has any ideas to like jump into MMA, even though his son is interested in MMA and everything else. But um, it's certainly something worth keeping your eye on. I mean, you know, Floyd Mayweather seems to be a pretty despicable person, but he's not a dumbass. You know, I've interviewed him. I've interviewed him a number of times in short windows, and I've seen him work with the media a lot. One of the things that always surprised me about Floyd Mayweather, um, and you see MMA fighters do this not nearly as much. This was what always shocked me. You get a guy on a on a UFC card. Let's say it's a free TV card, and if you show up with like a camera phone, um, they kind of get you know. You can tell their interest in talking to you is not particularly high. One of the things that shocked me about Floyd Mayweather was um, it did not matter if you had a camera crew with you or you were asking him questions on a cell phone. He would treat you exactly the same. I've, I've just never seen anyone do that at that level of the fight, at any level of the fight game, except him. Partly because he knows anything he says is going to be maximized. But that's sort of the point. In the YouTube era, if he says something crazy and they put it on YouTube and it gets shared, it doesn't matter that the guy had a cell phone or he was with HBO Sports. It's all going to get blown up the same way. And arguably, stuff on YouTube gets much more viral than anything that gets buried on HBO Sports.com or whatever. There's tons of boxing content on there that I only find on there. Floyd was so smart about that in ways that no one else was. I'm not here to defend him as a person, you know, to, to the extent that's even possible. But I'm just saying, like, whatever your holdups about Floyd as a person, or I don't like his boxing style, or whatever, those might all be valid. But let me tell you something, he is not. He is not stupid. He is not a bad negotiator. He is not a guy who doesn't recognize his own worth and his own ability to leverage things to get his worth and value maximized. I can assure you that. Uh, fighter union. Luke, we, are we getting closer to a fighter union? You have Jones, GSP, and McGregor speaking out the way they are. Could they be seeing a shift taking place? Again, I still don't see McGregor being... McGregor's not, you know... McGregor is not issuing discontent. He seems quite happy. Um, what he is doing is defining his value, which you don't see a lot of guys doing. But to me, you have Jones, GSP, and then you have... Jose Aldo, three surefire Hall of Famers having issues with the way they were treated. You know, UFC is certainly getting better about, uh, you know, at least for the media's sake, um, issuing short rebuttals, but they're they're just not the same as what they used to be in terms of the rebuttals, that is. Do you see any chance that UFC will get out of the Reebok deal given Reebok continuously puts out 
the products that do. No, I do not. How would a match clause work now that UFC has Reebok? Uh, very simply, they would define how much each fighter is getting with their relationship to it. Uh, if they have a Reebok sponsorship, I'm sure they can take it with them to the cage in Bellator. Uh, if they don't, and you know, you could say, well, you have 15 fights in the UFC, you get this much money, um, you know, whatever, or you can, it was estimated we would have put you in, put you in three title fights last year, or you know, whatever the case. Lawyers come up with ways to ascertain value, uh, and then they put it in a contract and say it's you know worth roughly this much. Um, it's it's very easy to get around. Uh, people keep asking me this. I'm not sure what the hold of the. Okay, did Krokop pass the drug test after all? Luke, from what we know, Mikro has been suspended for two years based on his own admittance of using HGH. However, nobody revealed his test results, and the event he was supposed to fight at was this weekend. Are the results not processed yet? This seems a bit fishy to me. My guess would be that the results are in, and he tested clean, which opens up a bunch of new subjects to discuss. One, he didn't fail the test, although he was using testing is not very accurate. Two. He got a two-year suspension only because his fairness, foolishness to the UFC contract uh, and admitted use of a substance that is hard to detect via drug test. Or three, is it okay to punish a guy who passed a drug test? Well, I don't think that these are really the relevant issues here. Um, maybe he did pass. We don't really know. You can do something in USADA called, uh, you can fail uh, what's called a non-analytical test. Where, uh, let's say, for example, let me just give you an example. Let's say you cheated for years. And you passed all the tests. And then years later, through circumstantial evidence, or not even circumstantial, through clear evidence, you you were using, I don't know, let's say a masking agent, or you found a way to pass these tests, even though you were clearly using, they found all your receipts for steroids, there's video of you injecting yourself, whatever. And then, of course, often what happens is in the cases of those non-analytical fa uh, failures, there is a, uh, a written statement by the athlete admitting to use. So it is possible what's, what's called a non-analytical failure um, to, to you know, be subject to these penalties. But if you look on the website for the USADA UFC testing uh, results, he was tested twice, Krokop. Um, so to me... The idea that he would be tested twice um, and pass and still admit use. Because remember, before he ever publicly admitted anything, uh, this case was already in motion behind the scenes. To me, sounds very implausible. Not impossible, but very implausible. Uh, now, if they came to test him and he said, well, I'm on it. Here's my receipts for all this stuff. I mean, you can test me, but I'm just telling you I'm on it. And he was like really forthcoming about it. And he still failed or still passed the test. Recall that it's not just passing the tests. You know, was there, do we detect this substance in your body versus another? There's a range of substances and there are a range of things, even if it's within the threshold. For example, with Vitor's TRT, he was in the acceptable range, but at the extreme high end, such that subsequent testing and other measures would have been taken to evaluate his readiness and ability to fight you could have one of those situations as well so there's just a lot of unknowns about it but for me and again i don't know for me the idea that he passed and just went ahead and snitched on himself i find to be very very unlikely 
with the new IV band affect Connor and Jose's performance at all? You know, both guys cut a tremendous amount of weight, but if I'm thinking to myself who's going to be more affected to the extent either of them are, uh, it would be Jose. He just doesn't seem to handle the cut quite as well, even though Connor looks like absolute death um, when he tries to make that 145 nugget as well. I just think Connor's in a different zone mentally than anyone. You know, it's so easy to call him a joker and an idiot and a clown and a buffoon. He just says stuff, and that's true that he does. But, the, I mean, if you didn't see any of that and you saw all the other stuff where he's putting his mind and focus and life uh, and support structure around him towards an end goal, you would begin to take him very seriously. <clears throat> Gunny Gunny Nelson, title contender. Uh, what are your thoughts on Nelson versus Maya? I feel this could be a massive launch pad for Gunny. Granted, his stock rose at 189, but Maya is a household name. Well, he's not really a household name, but okay. And he has recently shown major improvements in his striking. Also, for the first time, Gunny has declared on severe MMA. He wants to be challenging for a title in early 2016. So, well, there's a bunch of questions here. I'm just going to answer the, the one here that you've written. Yeah, I've talked about this one before. Um, this is another case where, in pure jujitsu, Maya's resume is clearly better than Nelson's. Um, but Nelson is, you know, he had that soaring moment at ADCC a couple of, or a couple of ADCCs ago, and um, I think it was 2011. He had a good ADCC. Maybe it was 2009. I, don't, I can't remember at this point. But uh, in any case, uh, where he took like Jeff Monson's back in the absolute and stuff. Um, the difference on the ground in MMA is not substantial. You know, that, that's the key for me. It's better for Maya to be on top, but it's not a huge differential there. You know, uh, for me, if he gets taken down, Maya can win a positional control battle maybe, but it's pretty close. On the feet, you know, to the extent they – really it's going to be an issue of to what extent can Nelson maintain space? Because if he can maintain space, he's the much better striker. But if he can't maintain space and he's constantly having to fight off Maya's attacks, even if he can mostly neutralize them and to maybe some extent reverse them, it still slightly favors Maya in that regard. So um, I think Gunny has more ways to win. And usually when that's the case, I usually side with that person's chances. But it's really going to be predicated on his ability to stop the distance closing of Maya. To, to the extent that he can handle that or neutralize it or take it away, um, he's got a big advantage on pure striking. They're just striking it out, like sparring, let's say, striking. Uh, I feel like Nelson would have a major advantage, you know. Um, whereas on the ground, Maya has the advantage, but it's relatively slight. Relatively. As far as contending for a title, man, until you can really beat a wrestler, a really good wrestler, um, you know. I don't know about your chances at 170. And Rick Story put it on him, you know. All right, true or false? Jones beats DC but won't be able to finish him despite attempting to do so a number of times. I'll say false. Stare downs by itself does not have any significant negative effect on high-level world-class wrestlers. Of course not. It's just for you. Very few welterweights on this planet can beat Stun Gun if he fights the way he should. Dog. Come here. Come here. All right. 
All right. Very few welterweights on this planet could beat Stun Gun if he fights the way he should, as opposed to fighting recklessly and trying to entertain. Yeah, true. Uh, I would pick Ioana and Jacek against Cadelia, but won't be that surprised if Cadelia decisions or submits her um, if they fight for a title next year. That's true. The probability of Aldo taking Connor down and submitting the Irishman is much higher than what most fans would generally think or expect. Well, I don't know what most fans think or expect, so I can't answer that. If Lawler versus Diaz 2 happens, Lawler would take Nick down inside the first two rounds in a five-round fight. No, I don't think so. False. RDA finishes Cerrone. I'll say false. Misha Tate would beat Katzengano in a rematch. I would say true. So far, the Reebok deal falls way below the expectations of not only the fighters, but also UFC brass themselves. Again, I have no idea what UFC brass are thinking, but I can't imagine they're necessarily thrilled with some of the items here. Weidman versus Rockhold will go the distance. I think so. I think so. True. Uh, the evolution of striking in MMA. Luke, do you feel Connor is revolutionizing creative striking in MMA as Kenny Florian and many others? Well, here's a Connor McGregor fan. And many others like Robin Black, Jack Slack have insisted. His use of the spinning back kick to keep his opponents in place to set up the straight left is brilliant. I don't recall seeing this technique utilized ever, at least in my recent memory. Well, let's just say one thing. Let's say he did do that. That's not revolutionizing striking. It's not a revolution. That's one technique. So do I think he's revolutionizing striking? No. He is not revolutionizing striking. Frankly, no one is. Um, he, I think he is contributing to some of the... Uh, evolution of it, but evolution takes a long time. Uh, it happens in small doses. Small doses can have tremendous effects. I don't want to. I don't want to um, take that away from people. A a slight twist on things can have a profound effect. It can make a difference between winning and losing a title fight. I mean, that's huge. That changes your life. But if we're just talking about revolutionizing striking, no, one or two uh, interesting adjustments is not in any way, shape, or form a revolution. It is at most. Uh, an interesting curiosity, a, a helpful addition, uh, a new way to consider certain positions. But striking is a entire bold, dramatic universe of, I mean, just think about parrying, just parrying, which we talked about a little bit in the Cecilia versus Choi breakdown on the Monday Morning Analyst. There's down parries, there's side parries, there's circle parries, there's low parries. There's just different kinds of parrying, not to mention footwork and foot positioning and balance and everything else. You're talking about revolutionizing all that? No, he's not revolutionizing any of that. He's simply adding interesting little twists that um, can have big impact um, and are important and are great and are beneficial both to him and to us. Um, we're better for it, but that's not revolution. Go to the Twitter machine here if we can for just a second. Luke, we need to come up with a new do product for, for you. The Luke do. That just sounds gross. Uh, how do you feel about the instant rematches when the fight is like Holm versus Rousey? Is it the promotion admitting the fighter they wanted to win lost? I mean, there might be some of that, but also it's, you know, never discount. Um, they're also going to be looking for, you know, who is managing a fighter's career, but they're looking to manage their paydays too. Uh, let's see. Who has the coaching advantage? 
Law MMA or AKA? Uh, who is Law MMA? Is that like Longo? I don't know who that is. Aren't Reebok and Adidas associated through ownership at a very macro level, but at a micro level, they are, you know, they entirely disconnected. What benefits would the money team provide John Jones if they were to sign him? Um, I don't know what their plans are. I really don't. In boxing, it could be tremendous with the right kind of guy. But even in boxing, it's not like, um, you know, they've changed guys' careers by making them part of some sort of management team there. Um, I don't know. I, I wish I had a better answer for you there, but it's not clear what the scale of the ambition is. And without knowing that, I can't tell you. Any info on events next next week? Q&A's, appearances? Yeah, go to UFC.com. Thoughts on, let's see. Thoughts on front row Brian tweets last night of literature claiming Ali Abdelaziz is a double agent and has worked for the CIA. Well, I don't know about that, but I will say that he, uh, front row Brian, has been really good. And I think Mike Russell, uh, looking into, you know, whether or not it's been uh, an appropriate relationship to be both involved with dominance MMA and matchmaker for um, World Series of Fighting. So uh, I certainly commend him on that. I don't know anything else. I don't know about the CIA stuff. Uh, the new UFC facility will be good for fighters. Can't be bad. Further centralizes UFC, but can most fighters afford good care on their own? I don't know. I certainly don't think it'll be bad. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't wish them ill um, for trying to do it. I think we should have some managed expectations about ultimately what it can achieve. But um, seems like a step in the right direction. Big step, small step. We'll find out. Is Rico Verhoeven a perfect prospect for Bellator MMA heavyweight division? I don't know what that means by perfect for Bellator. Um, certainly good for them. Certainly, um, he'd be good no matter who he signed with, as long as they took the long view with him, that this is a guy that's going to have to be raised slowly. And if we don't... Uh, 